0: Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro,
1: where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by TaylorMade Golf, the PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Pride, Two Under, Zexio, Sun Mountain Golf Bags, Finn Scooters, making the game more fun. Bionic Gloves and the McLemore Club. Experience life above the clouds. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro.
2: Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro. Thank you so much for joining me again this week, everyone, and for voting the show up to number six in the October edition of Podcast Magazine's Hot 50 list. You did it through your support and the wonderful guests that I'm blessed to talk to each week. Over the last six months, you've helped us climb the charts all the way from number 44 to number six. Only one goal left to attain, folks, and that's the number one spot. Please keep voting each day by going online to podcastmagazine.com forward Folks, this season has been so much fun, and what a wild ride. Again, all the way up the charts. Your support has been wonderful and very much appreciated, so thank you again. Okay, on to tonight's show, and I've got four more great guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you. First up is going to be our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. Tonight I'll get TP's thoughts on the Ryder Cup and the U.S. team's big win, plus the overreaction about the Europeans' team loss. We talked about it last week. Overreaction Monday. It still carries on. I want to get TP's thoughts on that. We'll also talk about the wraparound season on the PGA Tour and look ahead. And we'll look back at what used to go on this time of year, which was silly season. With the Skins game, the Shark shootout, the three-tour challenge, there's no silliness anymore. It's straight on to the 2022 season. We'll hear what TP thinks about that and a whole lot more when he joins me here in a few minutes. Following him, I'll get a return visit from former PGA Tour pro Donnie Hammond. Donnie's been a great friend over the years. I'll get his thoughts on the Ryder Cup as well. We'll also talk about some of the player caddy breakups that we've seen happen lately and, and then what it takes at the PGA Tour level to win beyond just having a great swing. Looking forward to having Donnie back as part of the show. He'll join me about 20 minutes from now. Following him, I'll get a visit from Dr. Bern Bernacki. Dr. Byrne is the president of the Golf Heritage Society. He's up there in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. We'll talk about some of the historic golf courses that are up in that area. We'll also talk about their recent 50th anniversary convention that included a program on the history of the wedge and the Hickory Society that's out there that's holding golf tournaments for players who only use hickory shafted golf clubs. You've heard our good friend Mitch Lawrence talk about those tournaments when he's been on the show over the years as well. Looking forward to having Dr. Byrne as part of the show. He'll join me a little bit later on in this hour. Then we'll round out the show with a return visit from Kelly Stenzel. Kelly has been named a top 100 instructor every year since 2009 by Golf Magazine. I'll talk with her about the growth of more women coming into our game, plus the growth of the LPGA Tour following the Solheim Cup and the tremendous leaderboard that we had at the Olympics. We'll also get some tips for adding more distance off the tee Plus, in our short games, when should we pull out a wedge versus putting it from off the green? We'll get that tip as well. Kelly will join me about an hour from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information are coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And thank you again so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. Before we get started, I always like to remind you about our friends over at the McLemore. My buddies and I were there not that long ago for our annual golf trip, and it was simply amazing. Everything about the place is first class. We had great accommodations. The practice facility they have over there is wonderful. The on-premise restaurant called The Craig has outstanding food and service. And the course lives up to every expectation that we had for it. I can't say enough great things about the Macklemore. Go online to com to see for yourself how spectacular the place is. The golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones. And our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen. And Golf Digest agreed, by the way, naming it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why we're all bragging on it by checking out the course and the resort online at themaclemore.com. And folks, this segment of the show is brought to you by our friends over at TaylorMade and their TP5 and TP5X golf ball. High draw, check. Low fade, check. Bump and run, out of the sander flop shot, check, check, and check. No matter what shot you need to pull off, There's one ball that's better than them all, and that's the all-new TP5 and TP5X from TaylorMade. With a newly redesigned dimple pattern that decreases drag and increases lift, it's the number one ball in golf no matter the shot. So whether you need to hit it high over the trees, under, or maybe even through them, hit TP5 or TP5X, the one ball designed to handle it all. Check them out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back with me is our resident director of instruction, Tom Patry. For everyone in the Naples and Fort Myers areas, be on the lookout because TP is headed back your way. He's going to be back at Crown Colony Golf and Country Club in Fort Myers soon. So start getting prepared to go see him so he can coach you up to a championship level. If you can't go see Tom in person, download the V1 video app and send him videos of your golf swing so he can help get you dialed in through the app. Please check out his website, tompatry.com and give him a follow on Twitter and Instagram at tompatrygolf. Don't forget to subscribe to his YouTube channel where you can watch nearly 200 free video playing lessons. Tom is also a member of the Titleist Leadership Advisory Board. And tomorrow is TP's birthday. So, happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, little Tommy Patrick! Happy birthday to you. How are you, T.P.? Happy birthday, my friend.
3: Christy <laughs> Boy! T.P., how's it
2: feel to be? What, what are you turning? 82, 83? How you feeling?
3: 97 and a half. <laughs> and a half. On, yeah. Tomorrow is... I'm nine under par tomorrow, Christine. Nine under tomorrow. 63. You know, it's... Uh, that's the number for the year. That's the, that's the goal number for the year. too, bucks.
2: Oh, I gotta so, say, you, you yeah. gotta be shooting your age now, right?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, I, I have two goals this year, and I, 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 when I turned sixty, my first goal was to was to get a score in the same decade as my age, and I've had seventy about eleven times now in the past year or so. No sixty nine. No sixty eight. So first thing is to get into the same decade, and then we're going to creep down to the sixty-three number. <laughs> <laughs> I have no doubt that both of those goals are going to fall. I mean, yeah, yeah, guy with team, a golf swing team like yours, ball. you kidding me? I'm actually starting to hit it pretty good again because I'm putting the ball better than I've putted in a long time. So, it's uh, it's it's in sight. It's in sight. I feel good about it. Yeah. Good for you. So. Hey, Tom, I want
2: to start all, out our. Uh, I want to start our segment out tonight talking about the Ryder Cup. You know, most of us, and I think you and I were two of them, went into that event thinking, you know, could the U.S. team not just win, but could could they even get along with one another? And and now that they've won in dominating style, right, 19-9, to 9, people are now starting to say the U.S. team is young, it's deep, they, they're going to win this thing for several years to come. And the opposite side of the coin is the European team. Oh, those guys are getting older. Guys like Polter and Westwood are probably not going to be playing two years from now on the Ryder Cup. Sergio's getting on in years. There's not a lot of great young talent coming in to backfill those guys. So, overreaction Monday had, the U.S. is going to dominate for years to come, and, and the European team is too old. You buying any of that?
3: Well, I, th- I think, Chris, like all these things, all these things are circular. You know what I mean? We had a hell of a run there for a long time. And then along came, at the same time, Seve and Langer and Woozy. Faldo and and that whole group, you know, and it was it was you know Spanish Armada. It was just they were loaded, you know, and loaded, and those guys were very dominant players worldwide for a long time. and the And the tide shifted, and it went their way, and and rightfully so. They were, that was an incredibly talented group, and they had some young people coming up that were talented, and, and they rode that wave for a while. and I think right now it's it's definitely it appears to at least be shifting back the other way. We've got a deep talent pool; they're a very young talent pool. I mean. Think about the five next five guys who didn't make the team. I mean, that they that'd be a hell of a five player team. Um and, and they are getting older and and the tide is shifting again. So I think it's just a big cycle. It goes back and forth. I, I think that what we're overlooking a little bit is there's some young talent in Europe that isn't that isn't bad at all. And and just like all these tour schools we go through, Chris, you know, like the Corn Ferry finals are going on now, you know, we're going to stage two. Who's going to be the next guy that jumps out and, and you know, is the Will Zalatouris of this year? So you never know. I mean, it's hard to say that, you know, their team is weak. They've got young talent coming up, too. There's so much talent worldwide. Uh, it appears that the U.S. has an edge and the tide has shifted, but you just never know. I think what the statement you made was, and it surprised me, too, how well this group got along, that's a real tribute to, to Stricker and his vice captains. That those guys did come together. There was a lot of there was a lot of grumbling, a lot of tension leading up to it, and then they and they rallied around Stricker and they did a hell of a job.
2: And Tom, I got to tell you, I was so impressed by Scotty Scheffler and what he did. a Captain's pick, by Strick. and the guy goes out and goes two zero and one, including beating John Rahm four and three in the Sunday singles matches. He was a pretty good captain's pick. I, what were your thoughts from what you saw from Scheffler on that stage?
3: I don't think I don't think Scotty Scheffler's talent is any secret. I mean, not not, list, not certainly not to guys on tour, not to really good teachers around the country. We've watched him. You know, he was a great junior player, a good college player. He's had a, he's had a nice start in his p j Tour career. He's solid. He he's, he's a quality player. He's he's not he's not scared of the spotlight. It doesn't seem like. I, I think it was a I think it was a good pick on Park, but it, it didn't surprise me that he played well. I mean, I don't think. I don't think it's any surprise how good Scottie Scheffler is.
2: And Tom, Bryson DeShambo went into those matches with all kinds of issues. I mean, the whole Brooks and Bryson thing was looming over him. He and the fans were starting to get to a boiling point with people taunting him and, you know, the Brooksy thing and all that. Then he splits with his caddy. He wasn't talking to the media because he didn't like how they were treating him. And then all he does is go out with Scheffler and partner together and go one and one in the team matches on Friday and Saturday. And then Bryson steps up to the first tee in the singles matches on Sunday against Sergio and drives the first green, walks off the tee with the, his putter raised, you know, over his head in his hands, acknowledging the fans. And then the fact that, you know, the next club I'm going to be hitting is my putter on this par four. And then he steps up and drains the Eagle putt. Did anyone do more for their personal brand at the Ryder Cup than Bryson? did?
3: I, I, I think, the personal brand thing Bryce is like a roller coaster. You know, we love him, we hate him, we love him, we hate him. We can't make up our mind if we love him or we hate him. You know. And it, it, it depends on what week you ask me, you know. I, I he he rubs me the wrong way a little bit. I think he's just a little bit over the top. Listen, he's a very talented dude. He, he's a di- obviously a different cat. He beats to a very different drum. And and he and he, and he made a good show in there. So my you know, hats off. Keep, you got to tip your hat to him. But uh you know, they they all stepped up, Chris. I mean, it, it, you know, there's so many storylines there. Where guys really came through in a big way. I mean, look at look at look at DJ's record. You know, five and zero. Oh. I mean, how do you? That was incredible. What, you know what he did. You know throughout those matches. And there's so many great storylines about guys that really came through. Um, right right through the whole lineup.
2: And Tom, where do you rank the Ryder Cup among? the great uh, sporting events that we have and you get the Super Bowl, the world series, the Stanley cup, the NBA finals, et cetera, et cetera, world cup. Where does the Ryder cup fit in your list of the best uh, sporting events?
3: The Ryder cup is right behind the Yankee Red Redstock rivalry, you know, <laughs> which is going on right now on ESPN. You have me, have me watching with the sound off right now. Um, now for me, for me, Chris, you and I agree on this one. My, my favorite thing as a golfer is is and always will be Augusta. I mean that nothing yep. to me, nothing to me is ahead of Augusta. And I'm I'm a huge Open Championship guy. I, I love the history of the Open Championship. Um, and and I might put the Ryder Cup behind the Open Championship as the third thing for me in golf. As far as all the sports are concerned, I have some bad news for you, Chris. What's that? can just hit one off. It. Stan just hitting off the green monster for 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 a stand up double, I think. Oh, he stayed first. Just sorry about that. Little a report to you there. Um, <laughs> I th- I think you know in all the sports. I mean, we all love. I think we do. Uh, we love the Super Bowl. You know, I mean, I think that you know the Super Bowl is a, is a spectacle, and a, of course the World Series. But you know, as as a golfer, and you and I I know we always agree to this. I mean, nothing's ahead of Augusta to me. Nothing in sport as a golfer. I mean, as a little boy on the putting green, that three-footer, that 4 foot we made was always to win the Masters. It was always the one you wanted to win and certainly play. And I remember going to Augusta for the first time, and, and you've been there enough, and we've both been there enough times. You walk around that corner of the clubhouse for the first time for that Vista, and, you know, I'll never forget that feeling. It was just, you know, it still chills up my spine. That's just a special place to me. Tom,
2: we're already into the new golf season. Got the wraparound season nowadays, so there's little to no downtime, right? We go right from the the tour championship, and then the next week we're already into the 2022 season. Um, this time of year used to be silly season. We used to have a lot of fun events, like the the skins game, was around Thanksgiving time. We had the Shark shootout. We had the three tour challenge events like that. Do you miss those events, or do you like this sort of let's just launch right into the next season?
3: I uh, I'm a big the the wraparound season is a big downer for me, Chris. I think number one, I think these guys need a rest. They need some time off. They need time to recharge. I think it's too much to ask. You know, they don't have any time to kind of take a breath and be with their families and and uh, and recharge their batteries. I think you're asking too much of them to play as many weeks as as they do, um, and travel like that intently. And, and you know, it's a, it's a pressure cooker out there. And then I, I miss the silly season. I mean. Wasn't it fun Thanksgiving week to turn on the Skins game? Wasn't that, yeah. wasn't that awesome? Yes, it was. I mean, you know, I mean, the Shark Shootout now is still in Naples every year, and I, and I go over one of the days and, and, and wander around. I see some old friends, and it's fun. Um, but all of those events were so much fun. You know, I mean, and I'll tell you what else. I remember when the last event on tour was at Disney. And the one twenty five was that was in jeopardy and so many guys were playing to keep their cards that last week and everything. And I certainly appreciate the Corn Ferry tour and what it's done for guys giving them a place to play. You know, but that last event at Disney was always a pressure cooker and it was always fun to kind of watch who was, who was jockeying for those last four or five spots and who was in, who was out. Um it's different now. I I know I know things change and, and time moves on and and money money's the driving force in T V. But uh, I do miss the I, I do miss the snowy season.
2: Tom, I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, get a couple of playing lessons from you tonight. And as the weather starts to get cooler, particularly for our friends up north, and and then the ground starts to get a little bit harder, the greens get a little bit harder and faster. Does anything about our swing or our strategy or the type of wedges that we're going to play? Does any of that need to change to compensate for the harder fairways and greens?
3: I mean, people that are real golf tourists, Chris, certainly, you know, you know, you take a yardage now with a rangefinder, you know, in in softer or more summer type conditions, you know, you you shoot the pin and you get a, you get a yardage and hit a club and you try to carry a pin high. Well, as those greens firm up and everything, and 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 the weather gets a little cooler, you know, you, you gotta you gotta look at a different way to get to that hole location. You gotta think about where you're gonna land the ball and how much is it gonna release. And you gotta play different types of shots. I mean, you know, the weather gets a little nastier, maybe you got a little wind, you got a little rain, you get you get some bad conditions. It's it's different golf, obviously. So you gotta think about different factors now and it's not just take a club and hit it to a hit it to a yardage. Um you gotta play the ball on the ground a little bit more at times. You gotta play different kinds of shots that are flighted. Um the game changes. The game changes up north. I mean, it doesn't change for me obviously and, and for you as much, Atlanta and South. Um, we're still gonna have some nice weather for a little while and not and going back to Naples, it's gonna be perfect all winter. So I don't I don't have to worry about those things too much. But growing up in the northeast, certainly the game changed in the fall. Uh you know, in the fall was firm and fast and the spring was wet and soggy. So it's almost like you played three different games. You played a fall game, you played a summer game, and you played a spring game. Um and you had to make combinations for those things and you gotta think about those things if you really wanted to, you know, shoot a good score. Uh, and, and the green conditions change because, as you said, you know, the greens are now going to get a little firmer and faster. Than, you know, some some grasses are going to become dormant. The ball is going to kind of trundle down there a little differently and roll out a little differently. So, you know, your your awareness has to go up certain. So to a phrase you
2: mentioned a moment ago, Tom, got to play the ball on the ground more often. For our friends up north in the, in the northeast or just in the northern part of the country, talk about shot selection. If I'm suddenly 40 or 50 yards off the green or 20 or 30 yards, for that matter, do so I need to be taking, instead of I'm used to pulling out my lob wedge, I'm used to pulling out my sand wedge and hitting that shot. Do so I need to start thinking about maybe I need to punch a nine iron or an eight iron, get the ball on the ground and let it trickle up onto the green and, and run because with the ground being harder, I'm going to get more roll and release?
3: I, th- I think you just gave a great lesson there, Chris. I mean, I think you said all the right things. I mean, I mean, certainly have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. I mean, uh, pin location, undulation, ground conditions, grass is it dormant? Is it lush? Is it, is it still growing? Is it not growing? You know, what's 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 in between you and the hole? Do you have clean? You have a clean alley to the hole? Is there a bunker in your way or a part of a bunker in your way? Uh, do you have to play? Can you? You have to? Are you forced to play away from the pin because you really can't stop the ball? where the pin is located, maybe hit it 15 feet left of the pin, two-putt, and get out of there and, and not do something silly like running through the green into a back bunker. Um, all those conditions have to be taken into account. You know, it's it's it comes down to course management. It comes into creativity. I mean, who was better at that than Sevy or, or Floyd? Uh, those guys were masters at those kind of things in, in different conditions, especially in open championships. Um, so you have to have a little bit of an eye. You have, to, you have to have a creative eye. And you have to evaluate those situations on a case-by-case basis.
2: Tom, let's move over into the rough, and for most weekend hackers no, no, like not. me. let's
3: not. Let's not, <laughs> let's not move over to the rough. Let's not.
2: <laughs> for most hackers like me, you know, we get into the rough, and, and we've always heard the phrase, you know, catch a flyer or something along those lines. But how, do, how should we be adjusting? The yardage is one thing, but now we're, we're in, the, in the rough, and, you know, we're not sure exactly what kind of a flyer we might get out of there, how the ball might jump and release and that sort of thing. Is there something in our swing and our club selection and, you know, shaft lean, something along those lines that we don't normally think of that we should be thinking about and evaluating when we've got a ball that's in the rough?
3: Yeah, you know, if if, if you look down and you have even a suspicion, even a suspicion that it's a potential flyer lie, I mean, and it doesn't come out hot, say it doesn't come out, the worst that's going to happen is if it' be right in front of the green, you can chip it up, up on an uphill chip shot and you can catch, you can essentially get up and down. The one that scares me is when it does jump you know when it jumps, and you have no control of that ball and it's whistling up in the air with no spin and it's going 30 yards further than you anticipated it going, and then you fly it over the back bunker, gone out of bounds or, or you know it just leaves the planet. I remember playing golf uh, early in my college career and I was paired with Joey Sindelhar. And when Joey was younger, you know that name, don't you, Chris? Of course I do. Yeah. So Joey was, you know, Joey in his youth was uh, was pretty long. And I played at Ohio State, was on the same team as John Cook. And we were playing somewhere, I think, you know, I, think I might have even been a mini tour event just after college. And we and he hit it over some Bermuda rough. And it was kind of sitting down, and I, I happened to walk past the ball, and it was a a classic flyer live. And, you know, he probably had 160 or 70 yards at the time. And he took a rip at this thing, and it came out flying, but it went the right distance, and it came down on the green. And I was like, well, how did you do that? He goes, it's really simple. He goes, I dropped down two clubs, and I hit it as hard as I can. Wow. So say it was a seven iron shot, he dropped down to a nine iron and he just tried to rip it and let it fly and let it go. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting take. And that's how he played flyer a lot. He just played it to fly drop down a couple of clubs just to rip at it, where, you, where other guys are trying to maybe hold it off or do something. And you, you can't control that shot. You can't control it. So you played the front yardage, took two clubs less, and just, and just let it go. Um, wow. I thought that was a pretty interesting take on how to play a flyer.
2: Tom, let's talk about another fairway trouble shot, and that's the fairway bunker. We find ourselves somewhere in the, you know, 100, 150 yards out, and we're, we're in the bunker. Um, how do we play that shot? You know, I've, t- I've tried in the past, you know, try to keep the lower half of my body quiet. But um, yep. you know times it, it's hard because, you know, you got to get it. Typically, you got to get it over somewhat of a lip. But how do we hit that shot, hit it crisply, and not end up sculling it or slamming it into the front face of the bunker
3: and we're still right back in the same spot? I love this question because here's the deal. I use fairway bunkers as a drill People to, be to become better iron players. I think the average recreational player has trouble finding the low point in their golf swing, getting shots both fat and thin because they're too active with their lower body. They make too aggressive a swing. They swing out of balance. They swing at a tempo that they really can't control. So I take a lot of people into the bunker, okay, give them a really nice line the bunker, and ask them what would they do if they had one swing to save their own lives Hit this shot solid. What would they do to ensure that? You know, and you get things like I dig my feet in, I choke down on the club a little bit, and I make a little more of an abbreviated swing. I I, I watch my – all all great answers hit solid golf shots anywhere in the golf course. Okay? So I I have people practice fairway bunker shots to become better iron players and control their low point. Key in that bunker for me is that I I, I do dig my feet in a little bit. I choke down on the club to offset how far I've dug my feet into the bunker get real stable with my lower body okay take a club more, make an abbreviated golf swing but the big thing is that I stay very centered and' very center. I don't there's not a big weight shift both back and through I stay very very centered hit that shot crisply that's a real discipline and I, I use that same discipline when I when I work on my iron game but i, I, I even personally when I work on my iron game I'll go in the bunker for 45 minutes for an hour and hit pairway bunker shots to ensure clean contact and stay stay in tempo and stay centered. So explain what you mean by staying centered. So I don't, I don't believe in a weight shift, Chris. I, I believe in change pressure in different parts of your feet when you hit shots. I don't really constantly try to shift my weight to the right and shift my weight to the left. I really make what I call a, a centered rotational motion. Um, does my body pivot and does my weight, in fact, move? It does as a reaction to my arm swing, but I don't constantly try to shift my weight back and through. I think when I make a back swing, because my right hip turns, the weight is shifted into my right heel, okay? As I return to the impact area, the weight's moving from my right heel through my right foot into my left foot, and as my left hip rotates, back into my left heel. So my pressure shifts, but I don't make this conscious lateral movement both back and through.
2: Tom, and one of the other things you mentioned that uh, a lot of us might say to the answer to your previous question is choke down a little. Talk about the difference between choking down a little and taking an abbreviated backswing. Because I think a lot of us just think about, well, if I want to take a little bit off this, I may take a little bit shorter backswing. So therefore, I'll take some distance off the ball. But choking down can also have the same effect, right?
3: Yeah, absolutely can, Chris. That's a great point. So, truth be told, I don't. With the exception of my driver okay, and an occasional freewood, I don't hold a club in my bag at the top of the grip. There's always a half an inch, at least, between the top of the, the butt of my club and where the heel pad of my left hand is placed on the golf club. I don't hold any golf clubs at the very end of the golf club, none, zero. So there's always I'm always choked down slightly on every club I hit in my, go- in my bag. Um, iron shots are accurate shots, they're not distance shots. And if I can, if I have to give up, I'm going to make this up five yards, and hit three more greens. That's a hell of a trade off, right? So I don't yep. I don't you know and I, and that was a discussion I had a long time ago with with the great Ben Crenshaw, who who doesn't hold any golf club in his bag, including his driver, at the end of the grip. He's finished choked down a full inch on every club in his bag, and that's that's something he he came to grips with with, with the great Harvey Penick. You know, keep the ball under control, uh, and keep the ball in front of them. Um, so, yeah, it is the same effect. I, I like I like my players hitting a lot of what I call abbreviated scoring clubs, seven, eight, nine wedges, certainly, um, with an abbreviated grip and, and at times an abbreviated golf swing.
2: Tom, give a shout out to a couple of your students because I see them doing great things out there. I saw a couple more won tournaments, shot their lowest scores ever. Give a shout-out to some of your students that are out there achieving great things. Thanks to you.
3: Well, thanks. Yeah, I, I, we had a nice week this week. One of my young ladies, Macy Benson in Indiana, just won her second straight uh, Indiana State High School Girls Championship um, and is is in the midst of the college recruiting process, which I can't talk about too much right now. But um, she's going to want to play in some big-time college golf somewhere. She's a talented little girl, and I'm really proud of her. Uh Jack Wack made a major comeback this week in a in a two day event um at Beth Page Red. First time in his life, Chris he fired a three under par sixty seven at Beth Page Red and uh, cracked the top ten in a pretty major junior tournament there. So he's really on a high right now, which is exciting. Um one of my, my uh young professionals uh unfortunately just missed at the first stage at the Corn Ferry, but he had won he won the pre Q the week before. He's making nice progress. He's gonna play some uh, G Tour Pro events this summer, and, and some uh, Point Ferry four spotters and PJ Tour four spotters on Mondays. Uh, Evan Wong is a nice young player, and uh, he's heading in the right direction. So yeah, we had some young people that are doing good. We got another kid named Maverick Conaway, who's also an Indiana kid, who's coming to see me this week. Actually, at, 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 at Farmington had a nice season this year too, won a couple events. So we got some nice young players who are making some progress, and uh, it's fun. I mean, that's that's the most fun, and you know, you work with these young people who are who are passionate enthusiastic, and enthusiastic and work their you know work their rear ends off is a lot of fun for me and uh it's fun when they have success and they you can you can see how excited they get.
2: I got some bad news for you, Tom.
3: It's two nothing, I right know I saw it. Sandra <laughs> so Bogart just hit a two run home run. I saw it. I saw it. I saw it. <laughs> it it's, it's <laughs> now, really before
2: amazing. I let you go, my friend, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether that's following you on your website or over social media.
3: I'd rather uh, instead of doing that tonight, Chris, I'd rather uh, brag on you, you cracking the top ten uh, with that podcast of yours. I mean you, you, uh, you come you come light years in that in that ranking and uh, deservedly so and in your head to number one, no doubt in my mind. I did a post this week, I don't know if you saw it or not, uh, talking about that 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 advancement, and I yelled out and shouted out to the folks at ESPN and the people at Sirius Radio and the people at the golf Channel they should wake up. And, and understand where the new talent's is coming from, not only on the Corn Ferry Tour and the PJ Tour, but on the broadcast world. Chris Carol deserves a better spot than where he is right now. I'm so proud of him. And we, we're all of us have come on. and we're, so, many, so many of us are good friends. And you know how many guys you have on and I'm friendly with and close to that are your guests. And, and we all feel the same when we get together and talk about you. Um, you're the best in the business, pal. We love you. Wow.
0: Well,
2: I can't thank you enough for all of that. And, uh, the show is going where it's going because of great support from our listeners and great support from people like you. And and no one loves you more than me, T.P. Don't ever forget that, and that includes your your beautiful wife. But um, Thanks, you're you're outstanding, and I can't thank you enough for all Thanks. your contributions and the great golf content that you brought us uh, this season. It's gonna be a while before we get back together on this show because this week's the last episode of the year. But uh, I can't thank you enough for everything, and and um, you taking time out of your busy schedule to come here every other Tuesday night to uh, talk to our listeners. You're outstanding,
3: my friend. I love you. Chris, thanks, tell you, uh, to be fair, Tell Donnie Hammond I said how We played some mini-tour golf together. And uh, remember me to Kelly Stencil. She's a wonderful talent.
2: I
1: will do both.
2: Take care, my friend. Stay safe. We'll catch up again thanks, soon. Tom. See you, Tom. Thanks, Tom. That's the great Tom Patry. P-A-T-R-I. com is the website. A finer human being on this planet you will not find. And uh, I can't thank Tom enough for being a part of the show as often as he has. I mean, tonight was episode number 58 that he has been a part of, and every one of them have been a privilege and a pleasure to have Tom on. And uh, I look forward to catching up with him again soon. Go see him down in Naples, folks. You want to take your game to the next level? Tom Patrick's is your guy. Before I get to my next guest, Donnie Hammond, I want to remind you about a few more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Squares Golf. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Squares Golf Shoes. The patented square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground. Effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of 9 yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right. It's proven in science. Go to Squares.com, that's S-Q-A-I-R-Z.com, and get Squares' 30-day money-back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. I also want to remind you about our friends over at Bionic Gloves. Whether you're looking to own the golf greens, improve your workouts, or get your hands dirty in the garden, Bionic Gloves have you covered. Designed with a hand specialist, Bionic Gloves feature patented innovations that help improve your grip. The strategically placed anatomical relief pads also help prevent calluses and blisters while the web and motion zones allow for greater dexterity and flexibility. Head over to BionicLoves.com to find the perfect glove to up your game. And this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at Zexio. In 2001, Zexio Strixon began making clubs for men and women, and they've improved on those clubs every year since. I was fit for a set of Zexio 10 irons by a great fitter on their staff. He got me dialed in, and they feel and perform fantastically. They are light, I've picked up nearly 5 miles per hour in swing speed, and they're deadly accurate. Every part of Zexio Clubs are made exclusively for Zexio. Everything is light and balanced, swing weights are made to give us the highest smash factor, and the best part of getting fit for Zexio Clubs is hitting it higher and straighter than ever before, changing your game. Zexio Clubs are a Golf Digest Hot List Gold winner for 2021. NB Park is a Zexio Ambassador, as are Ernie Els and top instructor Martin Hall. See why and how Zexio can help your game as well. Go online to ZexioUSA.com. That's x x i o usa.com, and pick which set is right for you. Okay, now back in making his ninth appearance with me here on Next on the Tee is Donnie Hammond. Let me remind you about Donnie's background. He was born in Frederick, Maryland, which is in the northern part of Maryland near the Virginia and West Virginia border. Played his college golf at Jacksonville University, where he was a four-year letterman. As a sophomore, he finished seventh in the 1977 Sunbelt Championship, and as a senior, he won it by six strokes. He would go on to lead Jacksonville University to two Sunbelt Conference Championships. He's a charter member of their Sports Hall of Fame. Donnie earned his tour card by being the medalist at the 1982 PGA Tour qualifying tournament at TPC Sawgrass, winning that event by a record 14 strokes. He played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 1998. He won twice out on the regular tour at the 1986 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic and the 1989 Texas Open, where he came within one stroke of the all-time scoring record by shooting a four-round total of 258 at Oak Hill. He won once as well on the Corn Ferry Tour at the 2000 Lakeland Classic. Donnie also won the 1982 Florida Open. Over the course of his career, he's had 42 top 10 finishes and he's made the cut 70% of the time that he's teed it up. And I'm honored to have him back with me again tonight here on next on the Tee. Hey, Donnie, how are you, my friend?
1: Chris, we're doing good. How you doing up there?
2: I'm fantastic. Thank you. Tom Patrick passes along his, uh, his hellos to you as well from the times that you guys played out on the mini tour.
1: I know I, I heard the end of the show there when he was on. I, uh, Look forward to maybe running into Tom down in Naples this winter. He does a great job down there. I always try to get a few tips from him, too. I usually meet him on the range during charity events, so I always try to pick his brain for a little something to think of that day during golf. There you go.
2: Donnie, I want to get your reaction. We're nine days north of the Ryder Cup now. I think as I was talking to Tom in the first segment, I think many of us went into the event talking about why the U.S. can't win and wondering if they could even get along with one another. And then we exit the event saying that uh, they may be the dominant team over the next several Ryder Cups and the European team may be too old, too thin, all that sort of stuff, all that overreaction Monday that we hear about. What were your thoughts from what you saw at the Ryder Cup?
1: Well, going into the Ryder Cup, I thought, how are you going to beat these guys? Sanders Shoffley, Dustin Johnson, Bryson. Brooks, I I mean, just I mean, the guys would they have two of the top two, three, four, five, six in the world ranking? I just thought this is too good a team that they have to win this event. If they don't win this one, uh, you know, they're really going to have to look at uh, a different strategy coming into the tournament. But I thought it was uh, very exciting to watch, and the golf was uh, exceptional. Dustin Johnson was unbelievable. Uh, you know, the power that he has and then to be able to manipulate the wedges like he did on a on a course like Whistling Straits was was just phenomenal and, you know, the, the camaraderie was there. You, you get some of the younger guys that have been friends for 10 or 15 years that have been competing you know, all the way back to junior golf and now you know, they're actual friends. They're, everybody likes being with each other except for maybe two of the guys. Uh, but the you know, the the camaraderie was there, the golf was there. Golf course was beautiful too. Uh Whistling Straits presented itself really nicely and it was a thrill to watch. I, I almost wished it was gonna get a little closer there on Sunday, but those guys are just too tough. Patrick Cantley, Dust you know, Justin Thomas. Uh the golf it, it was just too good.
3: Tony, a couple of guys
2: really stuck out to me on top of, I mean, obviously Dustin going final was a tremendous feat. But you look at a kid like Scotty Scheffler who was a captain's pick. Some of us may not have been sure that that was a good pick. You know, the whether you might go with someone like Webb Simpson or Patrick Reed and there's some controversy and that sort of thing. But, boy, Scotty Scheffler, we know what a great golfer he is. We've seen it over the last couple of years. But to go out there and, and to pair with uh, Bryson DeChambeau, they go one and one and the team piece, you know, between with the four ball and that sort of thing. Uh, but then to go out and beat John Rahm 4-3 and three on Sunday, really put a stamp on his performance. What do you think about what you saw from
1: Scheffler? I think that's a great point, Chris. I think that's going to do so much for him next year. When he has a chance to come up and, you know, contend in a major, he's going to look back on that, you know, beating the best player in the world in the biggest stage, being the Ryder Cup. He's going to be able to go back to that and remember that and know that he has what it takes. And, you know, that'll last a few years in his memory bank. You always remember the good things as a pro golfer. You kind of forget the bad things quickly. So uh, you're going to be good, but that, that should do a lot for him. I thought it was a great pick for Steve Stricker to take him a little bit risky, but that's, you know, that's where the game's going. Now you got to get the young guys under the gun get them out there playing in these big events because they're the ones that are going to be there, you know, for the next 10 or 15 years. So uh great pick from Steve Stricker. He did a great job. And uh, Scotty Sheffler, he's a, he's going to be a star. He already is a star, but he's even going to get better, I think.
2: And Donnie Shambo came in with a, a personal brand that seemed to be struggling a bit. He was obviously getting, um, Heckled by the fans, he was refusing to talk to the media, he was um you know the whole Brook thing was about to you know boil over, and uh, he broke up with uh you know his caddy so there there were a lot of things kind of mounting up on the negative side for him, but then he sort of came in there and and in my opinion, kind of won over the fans for sure. I mean, uh, like I say, he and Sheffler go one and one as a as a team. But then out there against Sergio on Sunday, he goes out and drives the first green, walks off, sort of raises his putter over his head to, I think, one, to acknowledge the fans and their cheering, and two, to say, this is what I'm hitting next on a par four, oh, by the way. And then he drains the eagle butt.
1: That's something I always wanted to do. Not, Not even the Ryder Cup, just in the PGA Tour. Drive off the first hole, par four, and then have the caddy hand your putter. (laughs) <laughs> and you walk 320 yards with your putter waving to the people. Yes. Hi. I have a 30 footer for Eagle and then knock the putt in. But he, he brings a lot of excitement. He's fun to watch. Uh, he's fun to watch warm up just hitting drivers on the, on the range. Uh, and he's maturing. He's learning, you know, learning the things that it's going to take him to be able to maybe be one, the best player in the world at one point. But that's going to be with the support of the fans, and you know, being having a good relationship with the media will help too. It just makes life so much easier. So he's learning a lot this year, and I think he did learn a lot at the Ryder Cup.
2: Tony, switching gears a little bit, and I've talked before on this show how I kind of liken the PGA Tour to a traveling show. You guys roll into town, you go out, you perform for the fans for six or seven days, and roll up the tents and move on to the next. City. Did it feel that way to you when you were out on tour and and you know kind of along those same lines what is some of the sort of less glamorous side of being out on the PGA tour things that we didn't know about and didn't see that makes being out on tour a bit of a challenge on top of being a heck of a lot of fun
1: I'll tell you a couple funny little stories one about Bob Hope about coming into town but I'll start out with the less glamorous part of the tour without a doubt is going from baggage claim with your club glove you know 50 pound golf bag with balls and shoes and things and then your luggage the rest of your luggage and trying to throw all of that onto one of those rent-a-car buses where there's 15 or 20 people trying to get on and you have 100 pounds of luggage that you're trying to single-handedly uh, get up onto this bus in a hurry the next day you wake up and your back sore and you wonder why and it's it's because of that rental bus that was always the pain for me um, you know every once in a while you get a little bit of help, but you know the traveling was tough uh you know sitting alone a lot of times in hotel rooms or sitting in a plane at thirty five thousand feet. you know you're heading out on the road for two weeks away from your family was uh you know you start getting. Missing them, you know, and you're only two hours, you know, after leaving home. So that was the tough part. But once you get there and you get in a nice hotel and you start, you know, playing your practice rounds and you get into the tournament, then you start, uh, you know, you start getting into it a little bit. But, uh, the year after I won the hope, I was paired with Bob Hope the first round and president Jerry Ford. And I played with Tip O'Neill and Bob, we were walking up the maybe like the third or fourth hole. And he's recapping the previous year. And he said, Donnie, you just rolled into town last year. You won the tournament. You got the money and then you left. And I kind of nodded a little bit. And I said, I, I think that's exactly the way it happened, Bob. <laughs> and so it was, it's like week to week. We come in, we try to put on a little show and try to make a little money. And then, and then we head to Phoenix the next week. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's changed a little bit the tour. Uh, guys are traveling a little easier these days and making a little more money, I think, than we used to, but, you know, it's pretty much the same show, and you know, it's the same game. It's um, a lot of the same golf courses, but it's uh, yeah, it's like a little bit like a traveling circus.
2: And Donnie, you mentioned winning that hope, and you did it in 86 in a playoff over John Cuckoo, oh, by the way, is going to be joining me here next week, but You guys finished that tournament 25 under par, which is around the winning score at that tournament every year. So is your mindset different when you're going into a tournament that you know you're going to have to be shooting well into the 25, you know, somewhere in that area under par in order to win? Does the strategy change knowing you're going to need to make a lot of birdies in order to contend?
1: Yeah, the strategy actually kind of plays itself out because... A lot of times in tournaments, you know, in the desert, you get perfect weather for the whole week. And it was a five round tournament. So you get there and some weeks, you know, the wind doesn't blow any days and it's 80, 82 degrees every day. The greens are absolutely perfect. So the golf course is just sitting there and you know, you know, you're going to have to shoot three or four under a day to maybe just to make the cut, you know, after four days. So, There is a little bit of pressure in that respect. Um, And, you know, if you're one of the guys that expects to win every week, you know, you got to start posting four, five, six under every day. So, you know, you think about that a little bit, but usually, you know, those courses weren't the most difficult there at the the Hope or even in Phoenix. And, you know, there's just par fives that you can reach fairly easy. So usually you kind of got under par fairly quick out there, and then you just tried to make as You know, make as many birdies as you could.
2: And, Donnie, most of us go through times when we're playing really, really well, and then all of a sudden we go out and play, and it's like we never played the game before. Did you ever go through a time when your swing suddenly went on vacation without you?
1: Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's sometimes in the evening on the range you think, I've got it. This is it. I'm going to be a top ten player. I'm going to be a top five player on tour. This is what I need to be working on. And you're just ripping it on the range. And you go out the next day and you shoot 73 or 74. And it's like, what happened? And it, you know, there's a lot of circumstances that come up during a round of golf when you're playing, you know, fairly difficult golf courses. And it's, you know, it's a game of inches. Sometimes you lip out four or five putts and you shoot 73. But then the next day, basically, you roll the ball the same, you hit the ball similar. And, You know, you had a few of them roll in and you shoot 69. So, um, I don't think people think about that a lot, but there's a lot of coincidences that happen that, um, you know, you play 100 rounds on the tour. That's just the way it's going to go. You're going to have good breaks and good things happen some of the days, and other days you're not going to get the breaks. And you just have to think, well, I hit the ball pretty well. You didn't score well that day, but give yourself a chance tomorrow. So, you just have to kind of experience that over a few years to to be able to settle into it.
2: And, Donnie, I've heard a lot about how guys on tour, particularly back in the 70s and 80s, used to help each other out if they saw a player struggling with a particular shot. Did any of those guys ever approach you and say, hey, Donnie, let me show
1: you something? Um, usually your friends would be the guys that would be helping you. Uh, you know, the guys that you were playing with on the mini tour or friends that you played college golf with. Those would be the guys that knew your game the best. For me, it was Larry Rinker, uh, Ted Treba, we played a little bit, David Peoples. Um, Certain of the guys were expert in different parts of the game, like Rinker was great with the short game. So, you know, he could show you some things in the bunker. Or Paul Azinger, whenever you'd see Zinger practice in bunker shots, you'd kind of cruise over there and see if you could pick up a little thing. And he'd be happy to help you. Uh, you know, he knew he was probably the best bunker player on tour. And he was, you know, he was glad to help because we were similar ages. So uh, even even some of the older guys would help that were, you know, 10 or 15 years older than us. Uh, Lee Trevino. Uh, didn't, I don't remember working much with uh, – with Arnold, or Arnold really didn't have a lot of swing keys, really. He just kind of ripped it, uh, played by feel. But um, Tom Watson a little bit offered advice. Ben Crenshaw was was good in that respect. But it, that's the way it was. I mean, guys are there to help you. There's, you know, 150 guys in the tournament, and, um, you know, it's a long season. So uh, guys are pretty friendly as far as helping you with uh, certain parts of your game.
2: Donnie, just a couple more before I let you go. and. We've seen a rash of players splitting with their caddies over the last couple of weeks, whether it's Justin Thomas and Jimmy Johnson mutually going their separate ways, or a while back Bryson and Tim Tucker, or this week, Bobby Watson and Ted Scott after 15 years together. And I understand that every situation is different, but can those relationships be just like any other relationship or coaching situations where, you know what, after a while, you just need a different voice on the back?
1: Yeah, I think – You know, like, I think it gets a little bit stale after a certain period of time. These days, you know, the caddies seem to be developing a lot more opportunities, whether it's Bones with TB or, you know, you see on Twitter where the caddies have a lot more presence um, doing different things, and they're, you know, they're almost like as popular as some of the players, some of the caddies. So, you know, they're they're presented with more options these days, uh, not as much reliant maybe on the pros, but it's... You know, you spend a lot of time with your caddy and when you get into a situation where it's not, you know, you're not having as much fun as you used to five years ago or six years ago, pretty much both you and the caddy realize that. And it's, you know, it's kind of inevitable that, you know, a breakup will occur like that. So actually surprising it doesn't happen more often, uh, you know, the time that you spend with a caddy, but uh, there has been. Yeah, yeah, three or four in the last uh, three weeks or so, you're right.
2: And, Donnie, there are a lot of guys out on the PGA Tour and the Corn Ferry Tour of uh, have pretty swings. But having a pretty swing doesn't guarantee success or anything. Talk about what it takes beyond having a good swing to be successful out on the uh, PGA Tour at that level.
1: You know, I, I was teaching um, some young players that were on the mini tours and things, and I, I always talk about there's just, there has to be 15 or 20 intangibles that'll make the difference to be able to go from a really good player on the mini tour to be able to go qualify to get on the tour and then to be a success on the PGA Tour. One of them is to be able to travel, be able to get around and be comfortable getting to the site and manage your time to be able to put plenty of effort into your practice rounds. Uh, you know, decisions are a big thing when you, you know, when you when you first get on tour, you might have three or four or five chances to, you know, to have a really good tournament. And the decisions you make on that Sunday are oftentimes make the difference whether you keep your card that year or you finish 135th on the money or 146th. You know, you have to keep that round together. And that's crucial for, you know, a first or second year player is to be able to stay out there on tour and to be able to finish off that Sunday with a 70 or 71 and finish third or fourth. Uh, so that, that really makes a difference for the players. Um, you know, they're all coached well. They swing so much better than we used to, better trained. The equipment has, you know, gotten a lot of the players more equal. So, you know, there's there's probably just, um, you know, there's a few less intangibles that are around these days but um you know staying out there the first year or two that's a big thing try to keep your card
2: and donnie beyond golf you know we're both have a a huge affection for space travel nasa now spacex we just had the first civilian mission to orbit the earth for three days and i tell my wife all the time we were independently wealthy i'd be next in line to go would you go if you could
1: yeah, I'd go. Let's, let's both go. You, you could, we could do a show up there. <laughs> yeah, we could That's right. we could do a golf show. Maybe then what, well, maybe an astronaut wants to learn golf and we could be right there for him. You could interview him and I could help him. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of civilians are going up and right. Uh, yeah, I, I would go. It, it seems to be, uh, they seem to be going off pretty much right on the clock these days and things seem pretty reliable. It's pretty exciting to see what's happening with SpaceX and Blue Origin with Bezos and just a lot of of cool things happening.
2: Donnie, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can follow you online and on social media.
1: Well, I'm down here selling a lot of houses now, luxury golf homes around Florida. So just go to DonnieHammond.com. Come down. We might play golf for three days, and we can find a home, whether it's Palm Beach, Orlando. you know, we'll find you the right golf course. But I wanted to congratulate you doing so well with your podcast now. I've just been noticing the last couple of weeks you're moving toward the top, and you're doing great. So yeah. I wanted to say nice going on that. I appreciate that.
2: Thank you very much, Donnie. It's great. Thanks to uh great guest like you, my friend. I can't thank you enough, Donnie, for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. Always great spending time with you. I hope we get the privilege of catching up again soon.
1: I hope so, Chris. I appreciate you having me on, and you have you take care of the rest of the summer.
2: Thanks. Thanks, Donnie. Stay safe, my friend. All the best to you and your family.
1: All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. See you, Donnie.
2: That's a great Donnie Hammond. What a great guy. And I'll tell you what, nine times he's been on the show now, and each one of those times has been, A, a lot of fun, and, be a huge privilege. A guy who had a lot of success out on the PGA Tour and uh, just a fine human being. Donnie always makes the segment so much fun. Hopefully, we get the privilege of catching up again with Donnie real soon. Okay, before I get to my next guest, Dr. Bern Bernacki, I want to give a shout out to a few more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. Are you like me, always considering new golf equipment, maybe a new driver? Well, let me reset your thinking because I discovered Square's golf shoes. The patented Square toe provides balance, stability, and a wider base for increased connection to the ground. Effectively increasing your swing speed by 2.2 miles per hour and an average of nine yards of distance. Independent testing proves it. That's right, it's proven in science. Go to squares.com, that's S Q A I R Z.com, and get Squares' 30 day money back guarantee. Use promo code DISTANCE for $20 off. Remember, distance comes from swing speed, and swing speed comes from your connection to the ground. And folks, I wouldn't tell you about it if I didn't experience it for myself. I've never felt more stable in my golf swing, which allows me to swing faster and launch it further. Squares, the distance golf shoe. And folks, this segment of the show was sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore.
1: This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show.
2: Okay, now next on the tee with me is Dr. Bern Bernacki. Dr. Bernacki is from my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He went to Central Catholic High School, which is one of the best high school football programs in the country. It's where Dan Marino went to high school. One of our favorites over on the football side, our show Thursday night tailgate, Steelers play-by-play announcer Bill Hillgrove went there, as did another former NFL quarterback, Mark Bulger, to name just a few of the great players that they've had come out of Central Catholic. Dr. Bernanke earned his college degree in biology from the University of Pittsburgh. He is a primary care physician at the Bernanke Family Practice and Wellness Center. He's a board member of the Pittsburgh Regional Healthcare Initiative. And if you're wondering, what does all this have to do with golf? Well, he's also a board member of the First Tee of Pittsburgh and the president of the Golf Heritage Society, and I'm honored he is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Dr. Byrne, thanks for coming on the show.
3: It's my pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. Dr. Byrne, I want to start out by talking about, you know,
2: your your golf game and when you developed the love of the game. Where did that come from?
0: Oh, boy. Well, I started out playing at Muni, Uh, right here in the city of Pittsburgh at what we call the Shenley Park. Now it's been renamed the the, the Bob after our former mayor who, uh, Bob O'Connor. So Bob played with his sons there and was often seen, uh, with his family out there on the Muni. And it so happens that, uh, 60 years ago, I would hang out on that same golf course and played with a mixed set of golf clubs. And, you know, the rest is, uh, you know, now becoming golf history.
2: So to that point, Doctor Byrne, you know the the Bob is is a heck of a historic golf course up there in Pittsburgh. It dates back to 1897. It's right there between Oakland and Squirrel Hill. It also happens to be the the home of the first tee of Pittsburgh, and the I believe it's the only course within the Pittsburgh city limits. Talk about that.
0: Those are all correct statements, and the history of the Shenley Park Golf Course is fascinating. Um, it's it's a a course that's you know, was built by the industrialists on public property. And when it was sort of discovered by the public, uh, the game of golf, that is, and they wanted to play on their Muni. Well, the folks that built the course said, you know what? I think that, that we, it's time for us to go some private courses. And from that came Oakmont, Pittsburgh Field Club and Fox Chapel in the, um, North and Northeast Hills. So it's fascinating how the history of the Chenley Park Golf Course and the other famous golf courses uh, overlap.
2: And to that point, Dr. Byrne, and I think most everyone knows about the you know, the two great golf courses that are not far from, from Pittsburgh. You mentioned Oakmont and obviously Mr. Palmer's home course there at La Trobe Country Club. But talk about some of the other great historic courses that people may not be aware of that are in and around the Pittsburgh area.
0: Oh, uh, Thanks for that question. I absolutely love to talk about our visits to Foxburg Country Club 1887. Going up there is a real treat. It's about an hour north of Pittsburgh on Route 79, then hang a right and go east on 80 for about 15 more miles. And that course uh, was uh, formed by a gentleman named Fox. He came back from Scotland and brought some golf clubs with him. Showed some guys all about the game, and they build a six-hole course, then a nine-hole course, then an 18-hole course. And that course has continued in operation until this very day. We play a tournament there. Uh, We've played 13 times uh, each year uh, for 13 years, and it's called the Foxburg um, Hickory Championship. Uh, in that particular tournament, Chris, we play um, gutty balls. Which are to Percha balls and smooth faced pre 1900 clubs. Some of the guys will come out in their own division with post 1900 clubs and a Haskell wound ball. And some of the guys will come out for fun and play with their modern equipment. The Foxburg course has a museum uh, above the clubhouse. It's an old, um, it's a second clubhouse they've had. They relocated it o- over the years, but they built it with a beautiful porch. And we all hang out there. And uh, upstairs is that uh, wonderful collection of uh, uh, golf clubs and, and equipment for over the years, all the way back from 1887. So it's a wonderful place to to go and visit, particularly in the summer when it's hot in the city. It's cool up there in the hills.
2: And Dr. Byrne, there was a recent Hickory Golf event over at Clearview Golf Club in East Canton, Ohio. Clearview was built and designed by William Powell, who was the first African-American to build and own a golf club. The course is a national historic site. Talk about that event and the history of that course.
0: Well, you're exactly right, Chris. That's a nice uh, summary statement. Um, uh, Bill uh, Powell was a gentleman who played a lot of golf as a youngster and in high school uh, and during World War II went overseas to Europe and they saw that he could play some golf. So, uh, Rumor has it that he drove the Jeep for the general, and they did okay over there. But when he got back to the state, um, because of the color of his skin, he was not able to get on a golf course. Uh, undeterred, he uh, found a way to raise some money, buy some property, and uh, build his own golf course. And he um, built that course and um, taught his youngest young daughter, Renee, to play the game starting at age three. Renee grew up, loved the game, as a you know, young um, young woman, went on and played in the LPGA Tour, had some success, uh, spent some time uh, overseas in Scotland, uh, and uh, developed a clothing line, did some other interesting things, and has a dormitory named after her, Renee Powell, over in Scotland at St. Andrews University. Interesting point. Lovely lady. Um, she is uh, like her dad. In the golf Hall of Fame uh, because they deserve to be. Um, the story and the uh, passion for the game is unparalleled. So um, to the to the point of the earlier visit, uh, the Golf Heritage Society has kind of adopted Clearview, kind of adopted Foxburg, and kind of adopted Oakhurst uh, as courses that may be in jeopardy. Um, the the Clearview is not so much in jeopardy, but we need to tell that story. We need to uh help people understand how important uh that story and that, that that land uh is to the American game of golf, with Mr. Powell and Renee Powell um contributing so much uh to the American game of golf. Anyway, we went out there in July to play around and we did something that is unique. I don't think it's ever been done before. We played uh, a round of golf uh, with guys who played, uh, four different types of golf clubs at the same outing. We played a foursome, went out and played modern and they were folks from Western PA who came out to meet Renee, um, and, uh, become familiar with the, uh, legacy of William Powell. Right behind them was a foursome that went out that I was in and, uh, two of the guys played Hickory golf clubs and, uh, one guy played those pirate tone clubs. And I played um, uh, classic golf clubs from the Palmer, Nicholas, and Player era. Those steel shafts, persimmon heads, and blade clubs. It was a blast. We all had a good time.
2: Dr. Burnham, I wanted to uh, switch gears a little bit. You mentioned the Golf Heritage Society, and I want you to talk about that a bit. It started out as the Golf Society, which was founded back in 1970. But talk about the origin of the group. Well, two
0: guys got together. They had a love of uh, collecting. Um, one gentleman was from Ohio, and uh, Bob Koontz, he was a, a club guy and a ball guy. He he just had a wonderful collection over the years, and the Gates Ohio, Cincinnati era, uh, area was a hotbed uh, for uh, play and collectors of the old game, several um, uh old courses, uh, Donald Ross courses in and around that era. And a guy named Joe Murdoch was a book collector and researcher who lived in Philadelphia. And these guys um, found out about each other and started to, uh, um, you know, correspond by mail, got to meet each other, and then, boom, they decided to start a society for people who were interested in in the old – Golf History and the Old Golf Collectibles. And in 1970, they formally, uh, with uh, I think 24 folks, founded the Golf Collectors Society. And now we're 51 years old.
2: And Dr. Vernon, the memorabilia that you either own or you must have seen over the years has got to be phenomenal. Talk about some of your favorite pieces and, and how hot the golf collectibles business is now.
0: Well, I'm Chris. I'm going to answer the second question first. Golf collecting is really, really fun. I only could talk about this for two to ten hours, uh, but I know <laughs> we have limited time. So when when we talk about collectibles, I want everybody to know and understand that everybody has collectibles. Everybody has something that's important to them, because well, the most valuable collectibles are those treasures that are close to your soul. Uh, it might be that a uh, scorecard and pencil that you were first time with your parents playing golf, or it might be the same thing on a first U.S. Open, the ball you played in a first uh, organized tournament, those kind of things. We call those golf treasures, collectibles. And then there are those other things that that are valuable in the economic sense. Um, uh, we learned uh, about two weeks ago uh, that a putter that Tiger Woods had And we don't even think it was a regular putter, it was a practice putter, was sold for on auction. Are you ready? If you're sitting down, uh, that's okay. If you're not, sit down $365,000. Wow. Wow. So, you know, there's economic value based on who owned what and those kind of things. So um, the range of collectibles is um, very diverse. And it's beautiful because it's so much fun. There are modern things uh, that are unusual that, you know, Ricky Fowler's hat and things that are quite older, uh, such as those long nose wooden clubs that were handmade one at a time, um, you know, they might uh, uh be at one of our uh, shows and be sold for a few thousand to $10,000. It just depends on who made it and what kind of condition it is. So there are people who collect simple things like those pencils and cards, and uh, then you get into the, the balls and the clubs, and it, it's a lot of fun. It's just a great time to be a golf collector. Of course, we renamed the Golf Heritage Society because our people in it are not only collectors, but we have folks that, you know, they, they're architects and uh, golf writers, professionals, teachers. Country club members, golf league players, the architects, the course superintendent, and and the historians, all these people have interests. So we said, you know, we probably should, um, acknowledge all of this family of golf interests and call ourselves the Golf Heritage Society. And if I may say, uh, our website is golfheritage.org. And if you go there, you'll see our fabulous website, um, and you can find out about our publication, The Golf. It's a quarterly magazine that we put out that has everything from collecting tips to golf repair of of several eras of golf clubs to interesting art, articles on golf art and sculpture and ceramics and jewelry and you name it because we have the – um authorities and members that can write the articles and bring that kind of uh, entertainment and education and wonder to our to our members and our audience.
2: So there's a couple of things there that I want to unpack, Dr. Byrne. First of all, um, you just recently celebrated the 50th anniversary of the group with a convention up there in Monroeville, which is just outside of Pittsburgh, right next to my hometown of Penn Hills. And our mutual friend, Bob Ford who joined me a few weeks ago, was a keynote speaker at the event. Talk about that event and what went on there.
0: Wow, there again, we had so much fun, Chris. So, yeah, we we expanded our format from a two-and-a-half day to a four-and-a-half day. Um, we played golf twice. We played up at a beautiful country course called Potter Ridge, and the Tanto family that owns it rolled out the red carpet for us. Everybody played. Uh, who played, whether they played Hickory or Classics or Moderns, had a wonderful time and a gorgeous day. The next day, we went to Latrobe Country Club, home of Arnold Palmer. And we played heritage golf, meaning we played our Hickory Championship. I personally played in the Classic Division with those Persimmons and Blades again because I wanted to uh, play a, a set of golf clubs uh, that Arnold Palmer was associated with, the power built by Wilson. It was a blast. I did pretty good. And the course was tough but beautiful. And afterwards, we had a 19th hole celebration at the clubhouse. We were welcome to wander through and see Arnold Palmer's amateur collection of winnings. We had hors d'oeuvres and we listened to you met, you named him Bill Hillgrove, voice of the Pittsburgh Steelers and Pit Panthers. He emceed an event. We bumped elbows a couple times because he's a uh, uh, class of Central Catholic a few years ahead of me, and, uh, he did a fabulous job. Doc Giffen, Arnold Palmer's right hand man, uh, Arnold Palmer's younger sister, Sandy Sarney, was there, and a few friends and relatives of Arnold Palmer. So we did all of that on Thursday. Friday, we had a art, um, we had a couple of educational sessions, uh, including the history of the sand wedge, where we brought out clubs from Boy, the very beginning, right up to the modern clubs and talk about who built them, how, why, and the fine point by experts from our own audience. It was fascinating. We had an art show where we had golf art um, producers, three artists from our membership, gave an absolutely fascinating presentation talking about how they choose a subject, how they respond when they are asked uh, to commission. Uh, a work and how they go about that business. We learned a lot about that side of the game of golf. Um And we um had a banquet where Bob Ford was our keynote speaker. And Bob was asked to um make a presentation and then take some questions about his relationship with Arnold Palmer. And Bob Ford, the consummate gentleman, got up and told several very, very, uh, intimate, classy stories about his relationship with Arnold Palmer. Uh, most of them were humorous. A couple of them showed the competitive side of, uh, one Arnold Palmer. But all in all, everything was a blast that evening. The food was good. The company was even better. So it was a wonderful event for us. Uh, we summarized on Sunday morning, uh, with a gentleman from Carnegie Mellon University who's a history guy. And he talked to us about the 1919, uh, PGA, uh, competition, uh, where a couple of amateurs were, um, uh, also present. And, you know, to be honest, I think it was the 1919 amateur at Oakmont that he was researching and previewing his upcoming book. That's Steve Flossman, PhD. And, uh, wow, did we learn a lot from that? That was just a great time. Well, Dr. Bernacki, before I let you go,
2: let our listeners know again about your website, what they can find on it, and then how they can get more involved.
0: Well, Chris, thanks again for having me. And I'll tell those folks who are your listeners and our new friends, uh, go to golfheritage.org, all smalls, and you'll find our wonderful website. We'll invite you, um, young or old, man or woman, uh, whatever kind of golf interest you have, You'll find 50 years of our archives, and you will have fun. There's a open to the public section, and then for $50 per year, you will be invited to look at 50 years of our uh, archives and go in places that you never knew about, about the people, places, events, and artifacts relating to the game of golf. So join us.
2: Well, Dr. Byrne, it's been a huge thrill having you as part of this show. I hope we get the privilege of having you come back again sometime because I know we've just barely scratched the surface of all the great things that you guys are doing. I can't wait to uh, hear more hear more about it and have you back.
0: Chris, I'd love that. Thanks so much for having me, and I'll look forward to coming back. Take care now.
2: Thank you, Dr. Byrne. Stay safe. All the best to you and your family.
0: Thank you, Chris. Same to you and yours.
2: That is Dr. Byrne Bernacki. And again, the Society, fantastic stuff. GolfHeritageSociety.org is the website. So much great content and information, stories available for you out on that website as well. And one of the things that sort of drew me right in is something that's little known anymore in the game of golf. It was a, a rule way back when, is, and that's being stymied. Way back when, you didn't have to mark your golf ball if your ball was in the line of your opponent. You could leave it right there, and they were what was called stymied because they had to either go around or try to figure out how to go over your ball. If they struck your ball, that was a penalty. So what an unbelievable rule that was way back in the day and a a great advantage you could have over your opponent. Again, go online to check out golfheritage.org as well as hickorygolfers.com to learn more about what they're doing as well. It was a lot of fun having Dr. Byrne as part of the show. Look forward to having him back on again soon. Before I get to my next guest, Kelly Stenzel, I want to give a shout out to a couple more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Two Under. Two Under men's performance briefs are the official underwear of the 2021 U.S. Ryder Cup team, the captain and all vice captains. They are worn by more than 30 players on the PGA and Champions Tour. They are also worn by over 70 NCAA Division I colleges and 17 NFL teams. The Joey Pouch technology provides the ultimate male asset management, delivering maximum comfort, fit, and performance from the golf course to the boardroom to the bedroom. Find these 200 performance men's briefs in over 4,000 golf pro shops nationwide, all Shields sports stores, PGA Tour Superstore, Golf Galaxy, and other fine retailers near you. Go online to 2UNDER.com. That's the number two, U N D R.com. Two underperformance in your pants. Use code on the t 20 for a 20% discount at checkouts. Not valid on items already on sale or NCAA license briefs. I also want to welcome a new sponsor to the show, Pine Valley Orthotics, and their founder, Stu Sakowitz. Did your feet, back, knees, and hips stop you from playing good golf or golf at all? Maybe plantar fasciitis or neuropathy is killing your golf game? Then you owe it to yourself to try a pair of Pine Valley Orthotics with a 30-day money-back guarantee. Pine Valley Orthotics are uniquely designed with an energy return system not found in any other product. When you step down, they gently spring back, relieving foot pain and stress, energizing your whole body, and they work. I love my Pine Valley Orthotics. I've got them in my golf shoes, and I've got them in my dress shoes. In fact, Stu Sakowitz, the owner, is so sure that they're going to ease your pain, he's offering a 30-day money-back guarantee. If you want better balance and stability, treat yourself to a pair of Pine Valley Orthotics today. Go to PineValleyOrthotics.com and for a limited time, you can get these for only $99 and a 30-day money-back guarantee. That's only $99. Ease your pain, improve your game, and change your life. Only at PineValleyOrthotics.com. Okay, now next on the tee with me is Kelly Stenzel. Let me remind you about Kelly's background. She's from Geneva, New York, which is upstate between Buffalo and Syracuse. She played her college golf at Furman. During her senior season, she led Furman to a second-place finish in the NCAA Finals. After college, she played professionally for five years out on the Futures Tour, the European Tour, the Asian Tour, the South African Tour, and the Australia-Asian Tour as well. She turned her attention to teaching, and Golf Magazine has named her one of their top 100 instructors every year since 2009. Golf Digest named her one of the top 50 best women teachers in America. And Golfer Women Magazine has named her one of their top 50 instructors as well. Kelly is a PGA of America master professional. She's written several great books, including The Women's Guide to Golf, The Women's Guide to Consistent Golf, and The Women's Guide to Lower Scores. Golf Magazine has also named her one of the most beautiful women in the game of golf. She is teaching down in Palm Beach, Florida now. Check out our website, com and Kelly is K-E-L-L-I-E, Stenzel, S-T-E-N-Z-E-L, so com, and I'm delighted to have her back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Kelly, how are you?
4: Hey, Chris. I'm great. How are you? I'm excited to be with you, and you know what? I'm feeling particularly uh, lucky here because you are now like this amazing like podcast top 50 number six, so I'm feeling super privileged to be with you tonight. <laughs>
2: I appreciate you saying that. It's all due to a great guest like you, my friend. There's no question about that.
4: That's great. Congratulations. Thank you.
2: Hey, Kelly, It's it's been a, a minute since we had the opportunity to, to spend some time together. I think the last time we spoke, you and your son were playing courses in the northern part of the country out there around the Montana area. Catch us up. What's been going on with you?
4: Oh, yeah. You know what? We're still lucky. We get to go out west, and I teach a little bit in Jackson, Wyoming at Shooting Star which is the most amazing golf club and the members are fabulous so what we do is we go out there and i teach a little bit and my son is kind of old enough now that he gets to work in the shop a little bit and help with the assistance and you know he thinks he's the hot shot and and then we take a little bit of extra time and travel out west so we spend some time in idaho and then we have some nice friends who are up in montana so we go up and see with see them and we do all this outdoor stuff which is so far removed from florida but I just feel like I'm so lucky because it's just very special out there. It's just a different summer because we spent so many summers in New York, which was wonderful, too. But it's just kind of a nice change. We love it.
3: But now we're back in Florida,
4: so happy to be home. Talk about some of the
2: courses that you had an opportunity to play along your travels up in that area because some of the vistas that I've seen for the courses in Montana are absolutely breathtaking. I'm dying to get up there. I tell my wife all the time, we're going to Montana. So talk about some of the opportunities, some of the courses you had the opportunity to go check out along the way.
4: You know, we, we spent an awful lot of our time at Shooting Star. It's just it's just this very special golf course. So because I'm so busy teaching, well, and it, what's nice is it's light until about 9 o'clock at night. So we'll kind of scoot out after my teaching day, and we can play 18 holes if we want to. But we've played a really nice course over in, in Driggs, Idaho called Tributary. Which was absolutely beautiful and and we just loved it, and it was a kind of a special place. It was you know all kind of down this little valley with these just beautiful you know rivers running through it, and you get to see the Tetons, which are very very special, but it's also it's nice for us, you know we get to do other things besides just golf, so we do a lot of hiking, and then we stay with some some good friends of ours who have horses so you know, it's it's just a bit of a world away from Florida. And then we also have friends who are up in Montana, so played some beautiful courses up there. But you know, a lot of our time is doing things other than golf, which is which is really fun too.
2: Kelly, switching gears a little bit, there are so many positive things happen happening right now in, in women's golf. The Solheim Cup has been great the last couple of years. The amazing leaderboard we saw on the women's side in the Olympic Games where so many different countries were represented there in the top 25 plus the Augusta National Women's Amateur event is is going strong. How do you feel about what you're seeing regarding the growth of the game on the women's side?
4: Well, first of all, I'd like to start with it. I'm just completely jealous how far they hit it. <laughs> I mean, these <laughs> young ladies and women, they just killed the ball. So, I maybe I need to take a lesson from them, but you know, it's it's fun to see kind of the growth of the game and how well women are doing. Like Jessica Corda and the year that she had was just amazing. I mean, it's just kind of fun to watch, not only the way she plays, but the way she handles herself. You know, I just think, and I think there's a lot that your audience can probably learn, you know, from watching these women play. It's just the scores that they're shooting. It's nice to see that there's, you know, so many birdies and so many low, low scores but I just think it's been kind of a heck of a year for the women's golf.
2: Kelly, I want to switch gears and talk uh, about some playing lessons because you've got so many great ones on your, web- on your website. Again, Kelly com. Um, you posted one not that long ago, about four ways to save par and go low. Do you mind sharing those tips with us?
4: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It, golf is funny. I, we, a good friend of mine, Kathy Hart, and I used to travel, and we used to always joke, we're like, good shot, good person, bad shot, bad person, because you definitely can kind of run that emotional roller coaster when you're playing. And, you know, when you go out on the golf course, I think there are just opportunities to, whether it's have a birdie or have a par or even make a really good bogey, which a lot of, a lot of rounds, you have good bogeys, and they keep you from really having higher scores, but you know, obviously, like if you drive the ball well, and you can drive the ball far, you're going to have a a lot shorter shot into the green, you know, or if you're a particularly good iron player, that's another opportunity, you know, if you get yourself in trouble, you can maybe get yourself out of it. But I'm, I'm kind of a big fan of having like a great short game, especially for women, because we don't typically hit it quite as far. And it's about managing risk. So if, if you were to go out to the golf course and just follow this very simple rule of putt whenever you can putt, chip when you can't putt, and hit that high pitch shot that goes up and over something that's really in the way. If you just if you're simply stick to that kind of simple rule, it's very easy to keep your scores very manageable and very reasonable. So I just think there are opportunities out there. And when you get into trouble, like don't try to be the hero. There's nothing wrong with a bogey. I've never had a really bad round that had anything worse than bogey. So I think a lot of times it's just recognizing, okay, I've made a mistake. That happens. I'm okay with it. I'm just going to play smart, try to get myself onto the green, two putt, and get to the next hole.
2: So to that end, and I think that's something that most of us don't do. We 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 try to play that hero shot. And we're in the trees. Well, you know what? I, if I can sit around this tree and hit it in the air and I can curve it around that, bunker and landed on the green, I can still make birdie or I can still make a par. And and we don't practice that shot. We're not out there in the trees practicing that cut shot and how to do it. But in our minds, we're Phil Mickelson and we think we can do it. How do how do we not get ahead of ourselves to your point? Walk away with a bogey, take your medicine, walk away with a bogey, go to the next tee versus, you know, thinking we're we're Phil Mickelson and we can pull off these miracle shots.
4: That's interesting, Chris, because I think a big part of it is understanding what you're watching on tv you're watching the best players playing their best golf hitting their best shots so you know if they cut away to somebody who's not even doing well in the tournament and you see them like okay he's got a 30-foot putt you know he's going to make it otherwise they (laughs) wouldn't cut away to him i mean it's just like this false sense of reality but i also think that you know when you're playing and you make a mistake and let's say you have a really high score you're going to learn from it i remember i played in a futures tour event which was a long time ago in york pennsylvania and had this really nice man who was caddying for me and i and i played really badly and like two weeks later he was really sweet he sent me this book which was like great players who've had disaster holes which was like Really nice of me to send me this book, but it was just, like, kind of salt into the wound to, like, reinforce (laughs) how poorly I had played and probably was telling me, like, even though I didn't quite get it at that point, that, yeah, you probably should be teaching and not playing. But I think you just learn from your (laughs) mistakes as well. You know, you have, like, a double digit. Next time, maybe you won't try to go through the trees.
2: You mentioned a shot a moment ago as well. The the high shot that we have to hit to get over an obstacle, typically a bunker, maybe some water. and that's a tricky shot for a lot of us because we get afraid of it and we desell it and we either chunk it and it goes in the water anyway or into the, or into the truck or maybe we accelerate a little too much and then we've, we've scalded and we've hit it way over the green. Talk about finding the touch on those kinds of shots and how not to fear it.
4: Yeah, I mean, and once again, it kind of goes back to like a learning experience where we've all hit the shot meant to go up and over something and the club hits the ground and it just digs. So the good news is is that there are a lot of golf clubs now that have a tremendous amount of bounce. And bounce is like this rounded bottom of a club. And what that I equate that to is a rock skipping across water. So if your golfer can get a club with a ton of bounce on it and learn to set it properly on its bottom. And I think that's the key because these lofted clubs look open because they're so lofted. And if they're sitting properly on their bottoms, The leading edge actually sits off the ground, and the face just looks like it's kind of pointing to the sky. But the beauty of it is that when you take that club and you just slam it into the ground, it doesn't dig. And if it's digging, you either don't have the club sitting properly on its bounce or you're pushing the handle too far forward. If you're hitting a high pitch shot, the handle should point to the center of your body. So if you take that practice swing, and you literally, I'm not exaggerating, if you slam that club into the ground, it should not dig. And then the beauty of that is if you know that you can bang the club into the ground and it doesn't dig, then you don't get afraid to hit the ground. So a lot of times it's just about finding a club that, you know, has that proper bottom design, that bounce, that when it hits the ground, that it, that it glides. Like really take those practice swings, let them really bang into the ground. And you should really hear that thump, but it shouldn't dig. So a lot of times it's just about setting up really well. And, and as I'm on a kind of a roll here, Chris, I think that's what you're seeing is these golf, even the tour players, because they have so much bounce on the bottom of these clubs, it doesn't matter if they hit the ground before the ball because the club just glides. So pitch shots really just the key is just finding a club that really interacts with the turf well. And then once you see that it's not going to get stuck into the ground, there's no reason to ever get afraid to hit the ground and skull it across the green.
2: So is that a, uh, that sounds like a great lesson and advice to us because I think when we're out trying to buy wedges, we're we're not necessarily focused on bounce. We typically focus on I mean you know you see the wedges nowadays there's so many different grinds that we may be trying to find this grind or that grind or or what have you or we to our favorite player, and, well, what do they play, right? And we're not, as you mentioned earlier, we're not them. Is that something, is a a high bounce wedge or set of wedges something for for the most of us that are weekend warriors, we should be looking for more bounce on our wedges?
4: Yeah, it's funny, a 100%. And It gets a little bit of a kind of a misnomer that people think, like, bounce is a bad thing. That is absolutely not the case. But And one of the companies that I work with is TruSpec. And they do a lot of kind of fitting of different wedges. And, and having, I'd say having the proper bounce is as important, if not more important than having kind of the right loft combination. Because it's the same thing in the sand. You know, if you're hitting a bunker shot and you've got the right degree of bounce, that club just glides right through. You know, for your golfers to maybe feel like when you're in the sand and the club just gets stuck, that's a sign that they don't have the right bounce or maybe they're pushing the handle forward. Like leaning a handle forward in a pitch shot is just a disaster because Even if you have a lot of bounce, if you lean the handle more forward than a degree of bounce, then you've negated it. So getting a club that not only fits you well, but learning how to set it up properly, kind of pointing to your center. And then release patterns are also a little bit different in pitching. But like, you know, I'm a big fan of these high bounce wedges because even if you make a mistake and you lean the shaft a little bit too much, the club should save you if it is the right club. They're like miracle workers.
2: And, Kelly, you've got so many great video lessons out on your website. One of my favorites is how to hit more solid iron shots as we talk about bounce and things of that nature because sometimes I struggle with my scoring irons, particularly eight iron, nine iron, and those full wedge shots. How can we do a better job of making solid contact and getting the ball up in the air and staying on line?
4: Yeah, one of the the things that I've kind of moved into, Chris, a little bit is I've got a couple of full-length videos on Amazon Prime. One is full swing and the other is short game. And those really talk a lot about good solid contact, almost always comes from posture. So when I see like a good golfer who's hitting really solid iron shots, which they have this like sound to them that's just like you can hear it, but it, it contact comes from good posture, getting bent forward from your hips so that your hands hang right below your shoulders. Because your hands and your arms will want to return to where they hang. Like in Justin Thomas comes to mind, like you look at him set up, his back is perfectly straight. He's bent forward. His hands hang right below his shoulders. You look at him and you think, how can he ever miss the ball? So a big part of it is is the posture. But I also think kind of a secondary part is really being being willing to let your trail arm. So let's assume you're a right-handed golfer. When when you swing the club back, your right elbow would fold. In order to get that club all the way back down and into the turf, that right elbow, that right arm has to straighten all the way. Almost like you feel like you're throwing a ball in your, in your hand straight down to the ground. And it's funny because a lot of people will think about their lead arm. They'll think about their left arm if they're a right-handed golfer. But if you get into good posture and you straighten that trail arm down like you're throwing a ball straight down, what that allows you to do is not only move athletically because your body will react to that arm straightening, but that gets the club all the way down to the turf. And I think, you know, golf's funny because the way a golf ball gets into the air is, you know, ball and then turf. And that requires you to really be willing to extend that trail arm down and let your body react to it athletically.
2: Kelly, let's talk about club selection when we're around the green and we're chipping because. There's, there's so many different shots we can play. So, you know, do I do I take a seven or an eight iron and hit it low and let it release and run towards the hole? Do I use a, a sand wedge or a lob wedge or do I simply just putt it? What are some things we should consider when we're sort of trapped in between? Which kind of shot do I need to play here?
4: Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I see so many of my my students and more new students think that. I'm close, therefore I should use a sand wedge. And that can really kind of get the golfer into trouble because like we've discussed earlier, if you don't hit the ground, the ball is gone. So I I tell my students that I want to see you be able to hit both a high shot and a low shot from 10 yards, 20 yards, 30 yards, 40 yards, 50 yards. You do not want my golfers to equate a shot with a distance. So to go back to chipping, which would be, kind of defined as a lower and running shot that kind of looks a lot like a putting stroke with a narrow stance gripping down and your weight forward. What I've really evolved to is that if your golfer can determine what is their most comfortable stroke size, like get set up for chipping, gripping down, stance narrow, weight forward, make a little putting stroke that brushes the grass. Because some golfers like little strokes that might be like shin to shin or some golfers like a little bigger stroke that might be a little bit less than hip-to-hip. So define your most comfortable stroke size and then hit all of your clubs. Hit your sand wedge. Hit your gap wedge. Hit your pitching wedge. Hit your 9-iron. Hit your 8-iron. Hit your 7-iron. And make your own short game chart rather than me trying to express upon each golfer, well, this is the right size for chipping because every golfer is different. So if you can just define your most comfortable stroke size for chipping and then literally, like, hit all those clubs, And maybe even throw in a a hybrid, try your five hybrid, try your four hybrid. And then you've got your own personal short game chart for your lower and running shot that you're comfortable doing.
2: Kelly, how do turf conditions play into which club we should chip with? If the ground is hard and dry versus it's just recently rained, we know it's going to get colder here very soon. And our friends up in the northern part of the country are going to be dealing with harder ground, harder fairways, harder greens. How should turf conditions play into what kind of shot we're going to play?
4: It's funny, Chris. Like the first thing that comes to mind is that everybody should just come down to Florida and visit us down here. <laughs> 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 it's not, probably not going to get that cold. And the turf conditions aren't going to change that much. We'd love to have everybody down here in Palm Beach, Florida. But, you know, I think that what you deal with a lot of times when it gets cold and wet is more kind of thick grass where the ball can sit down a little more. And and the more the ball sits down, the more you really just need to kind of change your leaning toward the target. So most adjustments are made in setup. So if if I've got a ball that's really sitting down in some deep, long grass, what I'll do is I'll lean a little bit more toward the target so that my forward shoulder drops lower. And when that forward shoulder drops lower, it takes whatever your chosen club is and it takes loft away. So whatever club you would use, you would just lean a little bit more toward the target and then just increase the loft. So, if you use a nine iron, you might use a pitching wedge instead. So, you're just really having to deal with the conditions get a little more difficult. And it's it's interesting because it's kind of a good general rule is the worse the lie, the more you want to lean toward the target. Because when your shoulders get a little steeper or your forward shoulder gets a little lower, it helps that club hit the ball before the stuff that might get in the way.
2: Another one of your tips that I love is the one where you show The ball kind of nestled in the rough off the back of the green, and you have an interesting tip for hitting that shot with a putter. Should we adjust our posture and hit that shot with a putter? How do we do that? Talk us through that.
4: Yeah, that was kind of a, a shot that almost came out of necessity. So I was teaching at Atlantic Golf Club in Bridgehampton, New York, where I taught for a lot of years. Wonderful club with a lot of really nice members. And it was always in just phenomenal condition. Like everything was just perfect. And the greens were just lightning fast. Then the ball would roll like just off the green and it would kind of nestle down into the long grass around the edges of the green or like a little chip shot or pitch out was just really difficult. Cause you had to have this incredible touch that even I couldn't do even when I was playing a lot. So I, I almost kind of, kind of came out of necessity because it was just such a tough shot. So if you're, golfer were to set up just like they were going to put even if the ball's sitting down and i and i do this all the time like this summer at shooting sorry i'm like okay at the very end of a golf i like i got a trick for you you know you can really like take that ball and you can just step on it just push it down and let's say it's one to two steps off the green if you set up with your putter and as i was kind of discussing before if it's a really bad lie you just lean more forward if you lean ex- obsessively toward the target, and you drop your forward shoulder, let's say it even drops like 12 inches, and you make a normal putting stroke. Because your shoulders are at such a greater angle, and the putter naturally comes at such an angle, what happens is the putter kind of glances down the back of the ball, and the ball actually pops into the air, and it jumps right over that little bit of longer grass. So it becomes kind of a non-issue that you think like this grass is going to get in the way. And it doesn't because the ball does this little pop in the air thing. The challenge becomes like convincing yourself that you don't have to hit it harder just because of that angle of attack changing and the ball having that little kind of jump up and over. So it's really fun. Like I almost always do it at the end of golf schools, you know, when I'm a visiting instructor because people are like, wow, that's like they think it's magic. But it's, you know, it's obviously just kind of physics.
2: And speaking of schools that you do, last week you did a clinic at the Palm Beach Par 3 course. Talk about the things that you go over in those clinics and by chance do you have any more of those coming up?
4: Yeah, you know what I'm trying to do a little bit differently this year is do more small group instruction. So, you know, my website has a lot of that information on it. But what what I like to do is spend a little bit of time on the driving range and then get out to the golf course. Because once the technique is pretty good, then there's that kind of next big step of how do I take these skills and how do I apply them on the golf course? And I think that's a lot of times what's missing in golf lessons. So when I do any like half-day school or full-day school or even a, a two-day school, we try to spend a lot of our time on the golf course because, you know, you can learn the shots and you can learn, you know, the good technique with your golf swing. But it's, it's learning the the pre-shot routine. It's understanding shot selection it's to even taking a second and writing down all your clubs and knowing how far they go. You know, I like to really build out yardage charts and short game tags so that, that my golfers, that once they kind of leave any time with me, that they're, they really feel like they have almost their own little script for their golf.
2: Kelly, just a couple more before I let you go. And a little bit ago, you mentioned Skillist. Talk about what Skillist is and how people can go out there and get a swing analysis and video lessons from you.
4: Yeah, one of, you know, as I said, it's you know every year is a little bit different, but I feel like there's a lot of kind of a younger generation that likes to kind of learn their golf online and doesn't really feel as comfortable in front of an instructor. So one of the things I'm doing is spending some time on Skillist, that's S-K-I-L-L-E-S-T, where um, I'm giving online golf lessons. I've really kind of dropped my rate to a very reasonable rate just to truly try to kind of grow that side of my business. So it's fun because I get to, you know, Golfers that were in London and in Australia and kind of all over the world. So golfers kind of send me their videos and I take a look at it. And um, what's nice is it's a very, uh, it's a very great uh, product and program where I can text with the student. They tell me what their misses are, and it's a very collaborative communication. So it's been really enjoyable, and it's for me, it's a way for me to reach students that I might not see face to face, but they're all over the world. and It's been really fun.
2: Kelly, before I let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things you're doing, whether it's following you online on your website or over social media?
4: Yeah, you know, the easiest way to reach me is kellystenzelgolf.com. And, you know, what I'd love to say is, you know, we would love to have everybody come down here to Florida. And and if you want to bring a small group, reach out to me and, and we'll help design something kind of special for you and your family or, you know, your group of girls or your group of guys or any corporate event. So. Probably the best way to reach me is on my on my website.
2: Well, Kelly, it's always a lot of fun having you as part of the show. I can't thank you enough for coming back and, and joining me tonight. Uh, you're fantastic. I hope uh, we get the privilege of catching up with you again soon.
4: Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. And as always, I just think you're a rock star and you just do an amazing job, so I appreciate it.
2: I appreciate that very much, and you. Take care, Kelly. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe. I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Thanks, Chris. See you, Kelly. That's the great Kelly Stenzel. K E L L I E Stenzel. S T E N Z E L. So kellystenzelgolf.com is the website. So much great content on the website, folks. I can't recommend it highly enough. Or Kelly for that matter. She she's earned every bit of being a top 100 instructor cuz she's fantastic. You heard it on all the tips that she just gave us and the answers she gave and and uh, just her general demeanor and that sort of thing makes it so good to have a uh, great talent like that as part of the show. So I can't thank Kelly enough. We look forward to catching up with her again. next. Okay, my friends, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of next on the T my sincere thanks again to Tom Patrick, Donnie Hammond, Dr. Bern Bernanke and Kelly Stenzel for joining me tonight. Please check out our website, next on the Dot net to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. And folks next week is going to be the last episode for season number eight. It has been such a fun season. And my thanks again to all of you and to my guests for making it so much fun. And we're going to go out in style. Scheduled to join me next week are Champions Tour pros John Cook and Olin Brown, plus former PGA Tour player Tim Simpson, who has also become a wonderful friend of the show over the years. will be back. And then my last guest voice I always want you to hear before we end the season is that of either Matthew or Mitch Lawrence and Matthew will be my final guest this year. So it's going to be a great show. I hope you'll come back and be a part of it with us. You can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great podcasting sites and apps like Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Podcast.co. Folks, thank you again for choosing to listen to this show tonight and keeping us a part of your golfing content. Until next week, Hit him straight, my friend.
0: consultation.